this afternoon, a lot of us are going to be having a fun time as we watch the Super Bowl. I know it's going to be a great uh, time with about a 200 million people uh, tuning in to watch. For some people, it's going to be a, not so excited about watching the game as they are about watching the commercials. And for some people, they're very excited about the halftime show. You need to understand, at the halftime show this year, El Sistema L.A., which is just like our El Sistema in Oklahoma City, El Sistema L.A. is going to be playing in the Super Bowl halftime show. So you're going to want to watch and see what are the kinds of things that happen like we're doing with our kids. So it's going to be a great halftime show. It's going to be wonderful commercials. I think it'll be a great game. You're going to hear a whole lot about Cam Newton, this young quarterback who is so good, so athletic. He is amazing. And then you're going to hear a whole lot about Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, who is now going to be the oldest quarterback in the history of the NFL to play in a Super Bowl. It is the biggest age spread in quarterbacks from the ages they are to play in the Super Bowl in history. And I just got to tell you, at this point in my life, I cheer for the old guys. (laughs) Nothing against Carolina, but I, I've always rooted for Denver, and I, and I like Peyton, and, and I'll be cheering for the old guys today. You're going to hear a lot about Peyton and a lot about his family. A lot of people think it'll be his last game. It's been such a storied career. But to understand the Peyton family, you really got to go back and understand Archie Manning. You know, it was Archie Manning who was born in Mississippi, 1948. He grew up and played at Ole Miss, and he was the number two pick in the first round of the NFL draft when he came out of college, went to the New Orleans Saints, and even though he was such an incredible quarterback, the Saints were so bad in those days, he never played on a team for the winning season. Never got to do that. But then he had his sons, and he had Cooper who came along, and Cooper, well, he was a great football player, but hurt his neck. And could not continue to play. And then Peyton came along and he went to Tennessee with an unbelievable career. And he was number one pick overall in the NFL draft. And then you had Eli, the youngest boy, come out. And he went to Ole Miss and a great career. And he was the number one pick in the NFL draft. And both Peyton and Eli have won a Super Bowl. And both were chosen the MVP of that Super Bowl. I mean... You couldn't write this stuff. You couldn't make it up. But when you talk to Archie, he will tell you he didn't care about all this. People like to say, oh, he scripted it out. He tried to raise up quarterbacks for the NFL. And he'll tell you, absolutely not. I didn't care whether my boys played football or not. Now, the most important thing for Archie was he wanted to love his sons and he wanted to be loved by his sons. You see, growing up, he had a wonderful mom and dad. They were very active in their church. But at the same time, his father was one of those who could never show love. He never hugged Archie, never told Archie, I love you. Archie longed for a closeness with his dad. He, he wanted to be affirmed by his father, but he felt like he never really got that. His father would die when he was just a sophomore in college. 
And he would so miss having his father, wanting his father to cheer him on, to share his success with. No, he missed those kind of things. And so he was determined that's what he was going to have with his sons. That was the most important thing for him. When his father was driving him to college his freshman year, they were on their way and, and Peyton said to his dad, what do you think I ought to study? What should I major in? And his father said, well, you'll find something that excites you. But the most important thing is just be a good guy. Archie wanted to be a good guy. He wanted to be kind. He wanted to love his boys and he wanted his boys to love him. That's what mattered. And so there were certain values that they tried to share with the family. He and his wife, Olivia, they raised their boys in church. That was important to them. And, and you can kind of see how it has come through in their lives and the values that have been instilled in them. Last night, Eli Manning was one of the three finalists for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award for the NFL because of all the kind things he's doing in the community in the state of Mississippi. But I also love the story of Peyton when he was growing up. When Peyton was 14 years old, he, uh, he was very competitive, playing football. He was the quarterback already. And he had a coach that year that wasn't really all that good. And they went out and they had a game and they lost. And when the game was over, the coach gathered the team together. And he said, do you know why we lost? Because you guys didn't execute the game plan. And Peyton held up his hand and said, excuse me. The reason we lost is because you don't know how to coach. Ooh. Well, that was probably true. <laughs> but Archie heard wind of it before Peyton got home. And when Peyton got home, he immediately put him in the car and they drove to the coach's house so that Peyton could go up to the door and apologize to the coach and ask to be forgiven. Because one of those values that they said we're going to embrace is respect for others. And if we do wrong, we're going to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And if we are wronged, we will offer forgiveness. It's one of the values we're going to have as a family, he said. Because when you do that, then you can be kind. You'll be a good guy. This morning, I want to bring to a close this sermon series, The Kindness Project. For six weeks now, you and I have been talking about it. And even though we're bringing the sermon series to a close, the theme continues to go on for this entire year. We're going to come back and talk about this throughout the year, The Kindness Project. For you and I have committed that we're going to try hard to commit a kind act, an intentional act of kindness for someone each day for an entire year. Whether it's a member of our family, whether it's a friend, a co-worker, a stranger. We say we're going to perform an act of kindness every day, intentionally. It's why we've passed out to you calendars. If you haven't gotten yours, pick one up. Take it home and put it on your desk, put it on your breakfast table. Read every day your statement. It's why we have giving you your wristbands, put on one arm, put it on the other when you do it, or use your church coin, put it in one pocket, 
move it to the other pocket, do something tangible every day so that you can come to the end of the day and say, I actually performed an act of kindness, an intentional act of kindness for someone today. I have shared God's love. We have said the foundation of this whole thing is when Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, it's because we have been loved, we choose to go in love, to choose to be kind. And the only way you'll be kind throughout this whole year is if you can live in a spirit of forgiveness. Our scripture lesson talks about that this morning. This is a powerful scripture. And I need to go back and kind of set the whole scene for you here. It was years ago that I made a trip over to the Holy Land with a group here from St. Luke's. And I just got to tell you, going to the Holy Land, it'll change your life. Powerful experience to go and see the very places you read about. I remember going down to the Dead Sea. And at the Dead Sea, off the site, then you're right by the, uh, the wilderness of Engedi. Now, whenever I think about a wilderness, I'm thinking about dense trees. But a wilderness in Israel is where it's barren. There is nothing. There are no trees. It's nothing but rock, and it's dried up. That's the wilderness. And we went to the wilderness of Engedi. Nothing but all these rocks, and it's just barren down near the Dead Sea. And you look up, and you can see these caves. And these caves are all natural, and they, they go through the mountain, and there's all kinds of different entrances, and they are connected. I mean, it is amazing with all these caves in the wilderness of Engedi. It's a great place to hide. We stood down there and we looked at these caves of Engedi and we thought about what happened 3,000 years ago. Saul was king of Israel. And Saul had a servant, David, who was growing in popularity. Everybody knew David. He had fought the giant Goliath. He was growing in popularity and people were now saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And uh, if you're king, you don't like to hear that. You don't like hearing somebody is so much better than you. And Saul becomes insecure. He becomes jealous. He's afraid people will follow David rather than him. And so they start talking badly about David. They want to harm him maybe to kill him. And so David has to flee from Saul and from being in the army. A group of men go with him and they go to the wilderness of Engedi to be able to hide from Saul. When Saul hears the word that David is there in Engedi, he takes a group of men and goes after him. If you start reading in 1 Samuel 24, you'll go back and it says, he took his men and they went to Engedi to look for David. And then one day it says Saul went up to a cave to relieve himself. He was going to the bathroom. And it just so happened the cave he chose is the cave where David and his men were hiding. They'd come in from another way. I mean, what are the odds? All of the men with David said, The Lord has given the enemy into your hands. Rise up and kill him. Well, David, Saul laid his robe across a rock and 
David snuck up very carefully and when he got there he cut off the edge of his robe. And Saul came back and put on his robe and started to head on back down the mountain. And as he started walking back down the mountain suddenly David appears at the mouth of the cave and says, Saul! He turns around and sees David. The one he's looking for. And David said, people say I want to hurt you. Today the Lord delivered you into my hands. Do you see? I got a part of your robe. I didn't touch you. I didn't kill you. Because it's not true. I don't want to hurt you. And it says Saul all but begins to weep. To hear what David has to say. To know what he was doing. I think there's all kinds of important theological things here. And yet there's also important to see that You know, David kept his distance from Saul. And David didn't try to go back and be just best friends with Saul. But David did not harm Saul. Instead, he chose to forgive him. To say that he is the Lord's anointed. I won't put my hand against you. He chose to forgive him. And it's because David had the strength and the courage and the compassion to be willing to forgive Saul, he had the right spirit to thrive as king. He'd be able to be kind. It's only when you and I choose to be kind that we're going to have to do it with a spirit of forgiveness. You have to live in a spirit of forgiveness if you're going to be able to choose to be kind. Sometime this year, you'll be in the wilderness. Sometime this year, people will talk about you. They will treat you unfairly. People will hurt you. It's like they want to take your very spirit. They take your life. It will happen. And yet you and I have to be able to center ourselves in Christ so that we don't choose to respond in anger and hatred. We're able to forgive. For if we forgive, we will be able to be kind. I want to leave you with just two thoughts today. First of all, remember that your enemies are not God's enemies. Martin E. Moeller was a great German theologian back during the time of Hitler. And when Martin E. Moeller started seeing what Hitler was saying and doing, he just started to speak out and say, this is wrong. What we're doing as a people is wrong. And because he was speaking out against Hitler, they stuck him into prison to shut him up. And while he was there, Martin wrote back to his family, to friends, people in the church, And he made a fascinating statement. He said, since I've been in prison, what I've learned is my enemies are not God's enemies. In fact, God's enemies are not His enemies. God's love is for all. David understood that. Saul was his enemy. But he knew he wasn't God's enemy. 
And that's why even though Saul was trying to hurt him, David could look at Saul and say, You are the Lord's anointed. The Lord's Spirit has been upon you. I will not hurt you. I will not choose to get even and try to hurt you. It's when you and I are able to say, I know that God's grace is for me and God loves me, but I know God loves others who are even different and even angry at me. And God is not asking us to get back in dysfunctional relationships. God is not asking us to, to go be best friends with those who try to hurt us. But God is asking us not to hate them and to forgive them. You have to do that for your own spirit. And as much as I've been having fun getting ready for the Super Bowl, I've also still been enjoying the basketball season. Our Thunder have been doing very well up until last night. We were on a five-game winning streak, and oh my goodness, some of the ending of the shots have been amazing as we've had these nail biters, and, and we played hard, and we're playing well. But I got to thinking when I was watching us play the Houston Rockets, you know, I'm born and raised in Houston, and I cheered for those Rockets for so many years. As I was working on this sermon, I got to thinking back about Rudy Tomjanovich. We called him Rudy T. Back in 1977, December the 9th to be exact, Rudy T. was playing for the Houston Rockets and we were playing the Los Angeles Lakers. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was playing along with Kermit Washington. Kermit Washington was always getting into fights. Back in the 70s, the NBA was a tough place. People were always getting into fights. Players were running into the stands to fight with fans. It was out of control. It's almost kind of like there's a bunch of thugs. And the NBA was struggling with this. And on December the 9th, 1977, Rudy was playing and Kermit Washington had started another fight. And Rudy was not a fighter. He was never in a fight. He was a peacemaker. He came running out to stop the fight. And Kermit saw him out of the corner of his eye. And as Rudy runs up, he suddenly turns and smacks him straight in the face. And it just sounded different. He literally collapsed to the floor. Blood was coming out everywhere. It turned out spinal fluid was coming out from his back, out through his mouth. They thought he was going to die. It just sounded different. It was so brutal. They rushed him to the hospital and they told Rudy, you're in a fight for your life. He did manage to make it. It was five surgeries he would have to undergo try to put him back together again. In the end, he missed the rest of that season, but he did ultimately recuperate. He wanted to make a comeback, and he came back the next year, and the next year he came back for the team. He played, but he wasn't the same. He managed to hold on for four more years, and his career was over. Kermit was fined and suspended, but he also came back the next year, but he wasn't the same. He too played four more years, and then his career was over. When Rudy left basketball, he really was lost, and he began to drink more and more. His father had been an alcoholic, and, and he didn't soon realize it, but he became an alcoholic. It was finally his friends who gathered around him and, and had an intervention and convinced him to go out to Phoenix, Arizona for treatment. When he went to Phoenix, Arizona, he got involved in AA, and there in AA, they taught him a program he was going to have to work. 
And Rudy said, what they taught me was that as long as I continued to hate Kermit, I was drinking poison but hoping somebody else was going to die. It wasn't working. He realized he's going to have to forgive him if he's ever going to change his own soul. And how hard that is to accept what has happened in your life and how it was unfair and be willing to give up the right to get even. To hate back. He didn't ask to be friends with Kermit. He wasn't going to go hang out with Kermit. But he had to be willing to forgive Kermit. And so he did. And when he did, then he was able to start choosing life again. He began to renew. He came back and got with the Houston Rockets. And before he knew it, he was named head coach. And now as head coach of the Rockets, they begin to win. And I will never forget, it was in 1994. I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on a business meeting. I can tell you the hotel I was in, watching TV, when we won the national championship, the first national championship of any sport, football, baseball, or basketball, for Houston to win. And I stood there and cried all alone in my hotel room. We won! Rudy was the coach. And then we won again in 95. And then he coached the Olympic team in 2000 and won the gold medal. No, Rudy is in a good spot. Life is good and he's happily married. He's with his kids. And when he started going to AA, he did something he had never done in his life. He started going to church. And he said when he started going to church, what he learned was what it was like to be loved. And because he was loved, he was able to love and forgive. You and I start with knowing that we are loved so that we are able to love and to forgive. For it's only when you and I live in a spirit of forgiveness that we're able to be kind. And so secondly, I want to end where I began six weeks ago, saying that where we are with this program, fundamentally it all starts because Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Fundamentally, every day, you and I are supposed to start with the understanding that we are loved. We've experienced the gift of God's grace. That's why we passed out these calendars to you. We passed them out to you so that every day you would start with a reading. February 7th, today's date. If you've already read yours for today, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. It's Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. It's because Christ has forgiven you that we are now called to forgive one another. That's where it starts. It's fundamental for us to live in a year, the Kindness Project, a whole year of kindness. That each day you and I start and that's what we think about. How we are loved. 
God's grace for each of us. I love the symbolism that David is in the wilderness. His life is barren. He is running because Saul is talking about him unfairly and trying to harm him to take his life. But in the wilderness of Engedi, there is the spring of the kid. It's also called the fountain of the goat. Because there in this wilderness, you will see these goats, these kids roaming around on the rocks. And the only way they can live there is because there is this one spring of fresh water. Right down by the Dead Sea, where everything is barren, you'll find a pool of water and these, all these trees, and you'll find it go up the mountain, the spring of the kid. It gives life. And for David, in the wilderness, in this difficult time in his life, there is the fountain. It is God's love for him. He is not alone And knowing that he is loved by God, it is the wellspring of his life. It gives him life, even when he is in the wilderness. When you and I are in the wilderness and we feel it is so difficult, we are not alone. We start each day by thinking about how we are loved by God. And that gives us the strength and the ability to forgive and to choose to be kind. You know, I've had a good time telling you about Jimmy Wayne in this sermon series. I didn't know about Jimmy Wayne really till the end of last year, and I've so enjoyed learning about him and listening to his music. I told you how he's a country singer. He's been very, very successful. Number of number one hits. He's written a couple of books on the New York Times bestseller list. One was made into a movie for TV. But Jimmy Wayne is such a a compassionate and faithful person, someone who's really grown in his own spiritual journey. It turns out that, I told you when he was growing up, he was growing up in a very dysfunctional family. His mom and his dad, they separated. He left when he was just a child. He might see him once a year. His mother got involved in drugs and she went to prison. He was then put into the foster system in foster care and then in group homes. One year, he, in over a two-year period, he was in 12 different schools. 12 schools in two years. Talk about instability. His mom got out of prison when he was 13. She came and got him. He was glad to be back with mom, but she married a guy who was a criminal. He had already performed a criminal act. He was on the run. They left North Carolina and they came to Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, then they went to Texas, and then from Texas back to Florida. Always on the run, sleeping in the car, hiding there in roadside parks. Finally, when they got to Florida, one night at 1 a.m., they pulled into a bus station and told Jimmy to get out, and they drove away. At 13 years old, he said his life really went into a downward spiral. He said that was really a turning point. Now he was on his own. He was in foster care some, in group homes, detention centers. At 16 years old, he aged out of foster care, and now he literally was homeless and living on the streets with no one to turn to. What would have ever happened if it hadn't been for B and Russell Costner, who let him mow their yard and came to know him over several months and invited him to come live with them 
And he would live there for about six years. In the end, he'd graduate high school. He would go to college, graduate college, and then off to Nashville to pursue his dream. And now he's had such success. He likes to quote Mark Twain. For it was Mark Twain who said, The two most important days in your life are the day that you're born and the day that you know why you were born. And he said, I know why I was born. And it's to be there for all these young teenagers who are homeless. He is always trying to raise awareness, providing homes, doing everything he can for all those kids out there that no one sees and knows about who are just like him. He wrote a song to really talk about his own life, his own journey. And he entitled it, I Love You This Much. You know, I thought today ought to be a special day and I would sing it for you. (laughs) But since this is the year of kindness, (laughs) I'm going to read it to you instead. This is really about Jimmy himself. He can't remember the times that he thought, does my daddy love me? Probably not. That didn't stop him from wishing that he did. Didn't keep him from wanting or worshiping him. He guesses he saw him about once a year. He could still feel the way he felt, standing in tears, stretching his arms out as far as they go, whispering, Daddy, I want you to know I love you this much and I'm waiting on you to make up your mind, do you love me too? However long it takes, I'm never giving up no matter what. I love you this much. He grew to hate him for what he had done. Because what kind of a father could do that to his son? He said, damn you, Daddy, the day that he died. The man didn't blink, but the little boy cried. I love you this much, and I'm waiting on you to make up your mind. Do you love me too? However long it takes, I'm never giving up, no matter what. I love you this much. Halfway through the service, while the choir sang a hymn, he looked up above the preacher, and he sat and stared at him. He said, Father, forgive me, when he realized that he hadn't been unloved or alone all his life. His arms were stretched out as far as they'd go, Nailed to the cross for the whole world to know. I love you this much and I'm waiting on you to make up your mind. Do you love me too? However long it takes, I'm never giving up no matter what. I love you this much. Whenever Jimmy Wayne is asked about his parents and how he feels about them, All he will say is, I have forgiven them. I have forgiven them. And I believe that's what's given him the power to be so kind. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's because we have been loved that we have the power to forgive. And if we choose to forgive, we have the power to be kind. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.